I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast contains explicit language. If you want to know how explicit, keep listening. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 13th, 2023. On this week's show, with March Madness set to begin, we'll check in on college basketball's Blue Bloods, one of whom, I'm sorry to report, will be watching the tournament from their Carolina Blue couches in Chapel Hill. We'll also discuss whether the NFL is colluding against Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson, and the Athletics' Nick Miller will join us to help explain why the BBC pulled legendary soccer player and commentator Gary Lineker off the air for tweeting about refugees. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Joel Anderson is busy working on Slow Burn Season 8, Becoming Justice Thomas, but... Clark Kellogg did give him a special shout-out on CBS's March Madness selection show. Thanks, Seth, but keep an eye on those Texas Frogcorns. They are a terrific team. Mike Miles is outstanding in the backcourt. Remember, they blew Kansas out in Lawrence earlier in the season. This is a very scary team seated number six. All right, guys. Froghorns. Froghorn Leghorn is my favorite uh, cartoon character of all time. (laughs) With us this week, we are happy to report uh, not a Froghorn, as uh, Louisa Thomas. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of a fatsis of books. By that, I mean three books. Three is a fatsis. Louisa, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. What are the names of the books? You can't name mine and not name hers. You've got uh, the book Louisa. Then uh, there's some other books. What are the the other books? Failing the quiz here, Josh. (laughs) It's uh, Conscience. Um, about four brothers in World War One, and Louisa, aforementioned Louisa, biography of Louisa Catherine Adams, John Quincy Adams' wife, and um, co-authored a memoir uh, with John Urschel, who also happens to be my husband, uh, called Mine and Matter, and co-edited uh, co- an anthology of essays about losers called Losers. So that's one more than Stefan. I was going to mention the losers thing. You'll get to hear it uh, coming up in our next segment. Um, And I also wanted to extend my years-long obsession with the end of football games. Joshua Newman wrote in, listener, writer of some repute, and he said that per the conversation about David Plotz's small yet perfect change, that an offense be required to attempt some sort of forward-attempting action rather than just kneel on the ball to end a game, 
uh, or be penalized with the clock stoppage. This was, in fact, something that former L.A. Rams owner Georgia Frontier thought about a lot in the mid-1980s, a period in which interest in the league was perceived to be waning. On March 11, 1986, her L.A. Rams proposed a rule at the annual meeting of NFL owners that would compel teams with the ball to attempt to advance it in the final 60 seconds of a half. The proposal was voted upon and resoundingly defeated. He said that he knows this because he's working on a book that is in part on Georgia Frontier. And he says, I am perfectly attuned to examples of ideas that she was teased for, which turned out to be ahead of her time. I thought that was fascinating. Who knows what we'll learn next week? (laughs) Stay tuned. In our Slate Plus segment this week, we're going to zoom out a little bit and talk about um, whether the men's college basketball scene is in a cycle of never-ending collapse and decay. All right, maybe it's uh, a little bit overdramatic, but we'll talk about whether um, the tournament this year um, will still get the attention that it typically does. To just discuss that, you need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this and other Slate shows. You get ad-free shows, and you get to support us, which we very much appreciate. Go to slate.com slash hangupplus to sign up. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. On Sunday night, the NCAA Selection Committee bestowed upon us brackets chock full of basketball teams, 136 of them, including the Howard men's team from here in D.C. back in the tourney for the first time since 1992. Go Bison! And the Southern Utah women who are taking part in March Madness for the first time ever. But not among them is the team that has the all-time record for wins in the men's tournament. Made the title game last year. They were ranked number one going into this season. That is the North Carolina Tar Heels. And we learned on Sunday night that they're not going to be in the NIT either because they want to, quote, focus on moving ahead. Louisa, as the co-editor of the aforementioned Losers, Dispatches from the other side of the scoreboard. You have some experience in these matters. What advice can you give to one of the most disappointing teams in the modern history of college basketball, if not of all the history of mankind? Um, Well, for starters, uh, maybe practice passing and shooting. Um, UNC was ranked 261st in assists per game, 317th from three-point range. Um, It was not actually, in the end, a very good team. Um, At the same time, uh, this is a team that lost second half leads um, in eight of his 13 losses. Um, that is actual dysfunction. So congratulations, UNC. You are actually much more interesting to me than a number one seed. I love it when teams fall apart. They just couldn't get over that New York Times Magazine cover story about NIL and and UNC. Um, Armando Baycott, their star forward, said that Really, I guess we just weren't that good, which may be as much of an explanation as one needs. Um, there will be fingers pointed at coaching. There will be Stefan, read the pointed. read the second half of that quote. Okay. It was more expectations from y'all than us than the media. <laughs> amazing quote. Amazing quote. That is an amazing insertion between really, I guess we weren't that good, and I guess we just really weren't that good. I hate it when the media says a team that makes the national title game and returns basically every player is going to be good. It's just classic, classic media. I hate it when the media misses all those three-point shots, you know, just like setting them back. Um, One thing that they, you know, you mentioned Baycott. Baycott was injured. Um, One thing that UNC was not was lucky this year. Winning is hard, partly because staying healthy is hard. And there is a lot of um, 
luck that goes into that. And this year, UNC um, had you know injuries to Baycott as well as RJ Davis. Um, and so who knows, you know, what their performance would have been had they um, had all those returning players, you know, been able to stay on the floor all season. But the fact is, you know, that's true across the board. Injuries often um, define the outcomes. And, and then we look back and, you know, kind of selectively remember which injuries we decide mattered and which we want to ignore. And, and, and we, you know, craft a narrative. It is the media's fault. We just craft a narrative based on, you know, what we decide actually happened. I do think that despite what Armando Baycott said, and despite the the legitimate explanations about how their three-point shooting fell off and they lost a bunch of leads, there is just genuine confusion both within and outside the program about what happened. And some of it could also be explained by the fact that they had one really good month in the last two years, which was March of 2022. Um, they beat Duke in Coach K's final home game. They beat Duke in the final four. Obviously, they had to make it to the final four to get the chance to beat Duke. So I, I think you could argue that maybe instead of being number one going into the season, they should have been number eight. <laughs> but that doesn't explain missing the tournament. And the thing that always gets talked about around who gets in and who doesn't, the bubble team, Stefan, is that teams like UNC, teams in the Big Ten and the SEC, have so many opportunities to win games. Um, and UNC, the, the reason that this happens so rarely is that each of these individual games actually isn't super high stakes. If they had won two or three mm-hmm. out of these, you know, eight to 12, they would have made it in. Whereas a team like, you know, I'm trying... Florida Atlantic is 31 and three and they like made it because they won their conference tournament or teams like Charleston and Oral Roberts, like that have pressure to go out and win every single night, because if they don't, they're going to get left out. That's what's amazing here. Stefan is that given every opportunity given in a sport where there's so much turnover, given the fact that they had all this continuity, um, that they still managed to now make it. That's why this is a rare feat that Louisa is so impressed by. Usually a school like North Carolina would get the benefit of the doubt um, on Selection Sunday, right? And they didn't this year. And part of the reason that they didn't is because their body of work didn't deserve it. So credit to the to the Selection Committee for actually having the guts to leave uh, a blue blood like North Carolina leave out the defending champion, which would have created, you know, the defending champion in a tournament creates all kinds of narratives, right? So even if they were it's coming in... one of the in, few teams where we know the players. We know the players. Um, they're coming in with this, this narrative history from last year to tell about them and the team. And the 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 story would have been, don't count out North Carolina. You can never count out a school like North Carolina Um, They could make another crazy run just like they did in 2022. Um, So the fact that they couldn't win the one or two games that could have given the committee the rationale to just throw them in there and nobody would have blinked an eye is kind of astounding. I mean, it points to how overall week their performances must have been their you know their what do they call it their uh their body of work must have been for them to to be dinged in favor of some other schools and there are two losses to duke they went scoreless in the final minutes i mean those, they were leading those games they went scoreless you know that is 
that's pretty rare, even among bad teams. I mean, that suggests that there is something else going on. There is some sort of, I mean, I do wonder when you do have these kind of runs of, of bad losses, you know, I think that we, it's really hard to talk about culture because we can't measure what's happening. In t- we don't see what's happening inside of a locker room and we can't really measure it in any real way. But there is this kind of like funk, right? There's this sort of like smell that starts to like set in around something. And that's got to that's got to affect people. And so I mean, it's, it is, it is interesting to think about, you know, all these things that we can't know and only speculate about. But, um, you know, I, I do think I think you're right. Like, I mean, they seem to not even give themselves the benefit of the doubt in, in this yeah. case. So the two teams that um, they went up against in the Final Four last year, Duke and Kansas, had very different seasons than North Carolina did. Duke obviously will live with the pain forever of having been humiliated repeatedly and publicly on the biggest stages by their biggest rivals last year. So let's not forget that. But they came on really strong uh, towards the end of the year, won the ACC tournament, (laughs) had this really long winning streak going in, and are... One of these teams, as many are, under first-year coach John Shire that is led by freshmen Kyle Filipowski, Derek Whitehead, Derek Lively, players that, assuming that they don't lose to Oral Roberts, which they could, um, we will get to know a little bit more of in March. And then maybe even more fascinating to me is Kansas, which you could make the argument was just as surprising, maybe not just as surprising, but was a a surprising title winner last year who went on this run in March, seemed to play above their heads a bit, um, lost, by contrast with North Carolina, maybe three quarters of their production. And as Kansas and, and Bill Self have tended to do, Louisa just completely reconstituted the team on the fly with a few returnees, a few transfers, uh, a freshman, Grady Dick, who will probably be a lottery pick, and are maybe the favorite to win it again this year. Um, so I don't know if we have a great explanation for how they did it, um, but um, they definitely did do it. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, it seems like they're the, the sort of anti-UNC, right? I mean, they outperformed expectations. Um, but... Uh, you know, I mean, some of it is probably coaching. Um, Bill Self will be back um, after a hospital stay, so we'll see what he's able to do um, physically, probably as much as you know tactically. But you know, I, it, it's always a little bit of a mystery. But there is something to be said for you know a team, a talented team that is well coached, um, that you know feels like it has something to prove, and um, you know was probably underestimated, um, just as UNC was was overestimated. And, um, you know, they're, well, they showed that they, you know, can, can sort of re, they can kind of rebuild on the fly. And you could argue that the biggest factor, the biggest decision that led Kansas to be where it is right now is the decision not to fire Bill Self, because he was one of these coaches that was caught up in the big Adidas scandal. Um, we might get to Rick Patino in a minute, Sean Miller, Will Wade, I mean, a bunch of coaches that were involved in allegations of pre-NIL era improper benefits to players are no longer at the schools that employed them when that happened. And the Kansas tactic here was to stand by their guy, to deny, to assume that the NCAA wouldn't do anything. And that has proved to be correct. And I make no value judgment about whether any kind of like NCAA violation um, 
that Bill Self or anyone else might have committed, you cannot get me exercised about. So I'm I'm not like upset that Kansas cheated or that they didn't fire the cheating coach or anything. I have I don't care. I think it's I think it's fine that they did what they did, but they made Stefan an objectively different decision than these other schools did, and they've been rewarded for it very well. Mm-hmm. Right, and and we need to consider what the role of the legend coach is here and where the legend coaches that um, have dominated the sport for the last 20 to 30 years um, are right now. I mean, Krzyzewski's gone, Roy Williams gone, Jay Wright at Villanova gone, and this is a, Seth Davis made a good point about this in a piece for The Athletic. Um, other great coaches, John Calipari's Kentucky, not as good as normal or as in the past and, and, and or as in the the quickly receding past. Tom Izzo at Michigan State, again, not sort of a power anymore. Um, that might explain. I don't know. I mean, I tend to to downplay the role that these coaches have in talent and sort of and sort of give more credit to the pedigree of the institutions and the abilities to recruit the 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 best players in the country year after year after year. But maybe that's changing, and maybe that's a bit of a role here. And Bill Self. Not one of those guys. Sticks around, still has the reputation, is able to go get players, able to reload, and maybe that's what is contributing to Kansas still being part of the uh, championship talk this year. Well, with Jim Beheim's, I'm not sure what to call it, retirement, resignation, kind of characteristically sour departure from Syracuse, he was really the last one of, the, of his generation. Um, you know, self Mark Few, mm-hmm. Izzo. I mean, Patino is still at Iona, and there's reports that St. John's wants him. Maybe Georgetown would want him after Patrick Ewing is out. Even Rick Patino is kind of of a micro generation younger than the Bayheims and and Shashevskis. And Louisa, I don't know if you saw Bayheim's kind of departure press conference, kind of denying. Well, let's maybe we should uh, listen to what he said. Are you saying right now that you're going to retire? This is up to the university. You want to come back? I didn't say that. Uh, Okay, but so what are you saying? You're not saying you're retiring, but you're not saying... I just said it. I don't know. So you don't know? Okay. I said this is up to the university. And you're not sure whether you're... How will you make a determination about when you will come back? You're talking to the wrong guy. So I think that dickishness will always be a part of coaching. Just... not every coach, but many of them. But I feel like this particular brand of dickishness, of like seeing yourself as kind of above the game. Above your employer, Josh. Yeah, that's a good, maybe that's the right way to put it. But it feels like with Bayheim's departure, kind of something is over, Louisa. You know, I wonder how much of it has to do with these shifts both on the call in the college sports landscape things like nil where players are kind of realizing that they have their own brands they have their own agency a little bit more transfer portals things like that they have more control and um you know more respect that the the kind of celebrity coach who is the figurehead um maybe kind of waning a little bit um also you know i i personally wonder whether or not um you know the number one pick in the nf and the NBA draft is not going to be coming from a school like Kentucky or UNC or Duke this year. I mean, he's coming from France. I mean, I wonder if some of the um, shift in the NBA's recruitment, you know, rise of 
G League and things like that um, has also kind of chipped away at the power of these like iconic coaches um, and just even slightly shifting their gravitational pull. I wonder if that's changing in things a little bit too. Do you guys have any thoughts on that or is that? I think there is something to that, but I also think that the kind of coach as a figure of just a towering figure is in, enduring and never maybe even been stronger in women's college basketball. You still have Gino Oriema trying to lead UConn to its five millionth final four in a row. You also have Don Staley. Um, you also have Tara Vanderveer still doing it. And then you have Kim Mulkey taking Baylor to the top of the game, moving to LSU and kind of instantly taking them to the top of the sport, seemingly by the force of her <laughs> will and, and personality. But at the same time, Stefan NIL has given um, women players more agency. There's been increasing use of the transfer portal in the women's game. But it, but the difference is that um, because of NIL, I think you have um, the college game being more remunerative and you have players that are incentivized to stay in college for three, four, maybe five years. Like Paige Beckers, maybe the most marketable player in the entire sport, gets injured misses the whole year, and she just says immediately, like, I'm staying in school. Like, I'm not going pro. Is it possible that women's coaches, the iconic ones too, and women's players uh, recognize that the changing landscape is a good thing for their sport more than the septuagenarian icons like Bayheim? Let's not forget that Bayheim earlier this season accused Pitt and Wake Forest and Miami of having bought their teams in the offseason through the transfer portal. I mean, similar to what Nick Saban said about Jimbo Fisher. Right. And, you know, go back to Shashevsky lamenting one and done. Shashevsky, to his credit, adapted. Beheim, at in his late 70s, was obviously unable to adapt. And I think that the women's coaches that you mentioned, Josh, view the changes in the sport as a good thing rather than feeling like they need to cling to the old ways that enriched them and allowed them to dominate the sport much more easily than the current more liberal transfer policy and compensation policies for players allow teams to do now. I mean, contrast that with Don Staley, who's making NIL, putting her name behind players' um, NIL contracts as part of her recruitment pitch. She is very open about the fact that she is in this not only to win games, but to raise the profile of women's basketball and make her players money, uh, money that she believes they deserve. Up next, Lamar Jackson and talk of collusion in the NFL. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
The Ravens and Lamar Jackson have, as we record this on Monday morning, failed to come to terms on a contract extension that would keep the quarterback in Baltimore for the long term. What the Ravens have done is anoint Jackson with what's known as the non-exclusive franchise tag. That means Jackson will be paid $32 million next year if he stays with the Ravens, but he's also open to sign an offer sheet with another franchise, which the Ravens could match, or if they choose to pass, would allow Jackson to leave and the Ravens would get two first-round draft picks as compensation. Stefan, this has been a strange and kind of uncomfortable dance between the quarterback and the team for really the last year. The 26-year-old Jackson, who is his own agent, along with being a former MVP, reportedly wants a fully guaranteed contract like the one that Deshaun Watson got from the Cleveland Browns. And it seems like the Ravens and perhaps the entire NFL are not inclined to give him that guaranteed deal. So what do you think is going on here? Well, I think there are two separate things at play, Josh. One is the internal negotiations between Jackson and his family and the team. Um, it can be difficult to be your own agent. It is probably not advisable to be your own agent. There are conflicting issues in, the, in play there. Your ability to be candid about how the organization is treating you, um, the, the personal emotional feelings about making demands that are rejected. Um, and then the second part is the Raven strategy in dealing with Jackson. Um, by putting this unrestricted tag on him uh, and allowing him basically to test the open market, uh, the Ravens are giving the league the ability to, um, to go after Lamar Jackson. And what we've seen so far does kind of whiff of, if not collusion, then weirdness. Um, you don't typically see teams immediately come out and say when a player of Jackson's caliber hits the open market that they're not interested. The Falcons did that. The Panthers did that. The Dolphins did that. It is really, really weird. Um, and the concern among owners certainly is that, and I think this is a consensus among owners, that Deshaun Watson's $200-plus million guaranteed contract with Cleveland was a bad thing for the sport, for the owners, not for players, certainly. And there is a reluctance to allow this to happen again. And owners are basically on call. Um, if they cave and give Lamar Jackson $250 million, the rest of the fellowship is going to be upset here. Of course, it only takes one, and that is the 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 that's the the thing to look for here. Will someone say, "Look, Lamar Jackson's worth it. I don't care what the rest of you think. We want to have a great quarterback." Are they wrong about that? I mean, it would. This is how contracts often work. Someone gets the the best contract, and then the next great player comes along and says, "I want that plus," um, which is what Lamar Jackson is doing. Um, it was well known after Deshaun Watson signed that contract um, for you know guaranteed money that this was going to be a big deal going forward because it did you know quote unquote reset the market and we knew then that the NFL player owners were not happy about that. Um, NFL has always had more leverage than its players because of the brutality and the short careers, um, and that was a sign that maybe that was going to change when a player like Lamar Jackson came up for a contract. Um, so this is kind of like existential struggle for them. You know, is this going to be a major, um, story in the, in the question of, of 
the player's value going forward. Um, you know, Lamar Jackson doesn't seem to want to negotiate. What do you have to negotiate if what you want is a lot of guaranteed money? You know, he seems to know what he wants and is not, you know, in it for for a conversation. Um, uh-huh. He deserves it. I mean, the you know, the Ravens are worth billions. Um, how much of that is due to their star quarterback player? Um, you know, on the other side, he does get injured um, a lot and he plays, um, he runs a lot, which opens up him up to even more injury. Um, and, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to set the precedent um, of, of, of guaranteeing that kind of contract. So um, it was not surprising to me um, that he did not get that money. And, um, you know, is it collusion or is it what we already know that, um, you know, NFL owners do not want to guarantee money contracts going forward. I mean, I, I actually don't know, even know, like what is the definition of collusion here? If it's a sort of consent, if it's a sort of silent consensus. So the NFLPA sent a memo last fall. This is not um, a conversation that's just starting now that um, in this, this memo, it said the expectation was that fully guaranteed contracts would now become the competition driven norm for the top players in the league, including quarterbacks negotiating new contracts. And the NFLPA contends that before and during the August 9th, 2022 ownership meeting, NFL owners and or league executives discussed not agreeing to any additional player contracts with fully guaranteed salaries. That contention, I think, is where this would um, be decided if it would go to an arbitrator or a judge. Um, I think with Colin Kaepernick um, and the collusion claim there, he got paid off because the owners, if there's one thing they like less than guaranteed contracts, it's having to be deposed <laughs> and having discovery. Um, so I don't, it doesn't seem like it's going to get there um, in this case, to me at least, as we, as we sit right here. But the thing that I, I think was so troubling to the owners about the Watson deal, Stefan, is that Deshaun Watson is not Patrick Mahomes. You could argue if Patrick Mahomes got this, a deal with guaranteed money, if you were a team, if you were a, a GM, like, all right, even you, Lamar Jackson, you're not Patrick Mahomes. Nobody is Patrick Mahomes. This doesn't reset the market. It's a market of one. With Deshaun Watson, you have a guy who had more than you know two dozen allegations of sexual assault and inappropriate sexual behavior. Um, you had a guy who, even if you discounted all that, which the Browns clearly did, was not the best quarterback in the league. He demonstrated this past year that he's maybe not one of the top 20 quarterbacks in the league, which is worse performance than I think anyone would have expected given his history. But with Watson getting that money, now basically every quality starting quarterback in the league can say that they're better than this guy who got the $200 million plus. There is not an agent out there who will look at Deshaun Watson and say, oh, you know, we're going to give the Browns a pass. They made a mistake. Um, <laughs> it's okay. We'll take less. That's not how this works. And the way that baseball owners got into trouble and were forced to pay hundreds of millions of dollars um, in collusion cases in the 80s and 90s was the arrogance that they had that they could go out publicly and basically ignore the market. And they would put things in writing and say things out loud. Um, 
to demonstrate that they were not going to let the market operate in a free way. Um, the Ravens owner himself, Steve Bashotti, in March of 2022, said at NFL meetings, and this was to reporters, this wasn't well, some secret tape that was released. Damn, I wish they hadn't guaranteed the whole contract. I don't know that he should have been the first guy to get a fully guaranteed contract. To me, that's something that is groundbreaking and it'll make negotiations harder with others. Well, if that's not like a giant flashing light saying, Lamar Jackson, you know, don't expect a, a guaranteed, a fully guaranteed deal from us. I don't know what is. There's a great little detail that the NFLPA referred to these meetings as like collusion meetings. <laughs> you know, it's it's all it's all very kind of above board in this weird way. I mean, my confusion about it doesn't have to do with my belief that it is by some definition collusion. I just don't, you know, it would be interesting to see how that played out, you know, if it did get to a plate when I agree with um Josh that I doubt that Right, it it's will. in nobody's interest to to let this go to arbitration or to a court case. I mean, it might be in Lamar Jackson's interest if he's willing to sit out a year and make a case of it. That's an incredibly rare thing, and it doesn't, it's only happened, what, like once really um, in the NFL. Um, Lamar Jackson is 26. He's in the prime of his career. They have a new offensive coordinator whose job will be to make him uh, more of a thrower than he already is, and he's already a really good passer, let's not forget. Um, so the Ravens, there are signs that the Ravens don't want to allow Lamar Jackson to leave, but it's a push comes to shove question here. How much will the Ravens be willing to bend to Jackson and how much will Jackson and his representatives, if he decides to hire one um, or just him and his family, be willing to uh, compromise on a demand for a fully guaranteed deal? Reports are that Jackson turned down five years, $250 million in September with $133 million guaranteed. The Watson contract is $230 million, all guaranteed. Um, so the amount of guaranteed money that um, Jackson was offered is more than Russell Wilson, more than Kyler Murray, um, and $100 million less than Deshaun Watson. We get back to the point uh, why NFL owners hate the Deshaun Watson contract. Um, and I thought Mike Florio made a good point around the whole Lamar needs an agent conversation. I think that when that gets tossed around, I think the assumption that's made is like, oh, um, you need an agent to like literally negotiate the contract. But that's a misunderstanding of what all agents do. What Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson probably needs an agent least for that mm -hmm. part of it. What he needs the agent for most is to control the media narrative, to drum up a bidding war, to get stories um, generated that are either true or plausible that counteract this idea that all these teams don't even want to start the conversation. Well, and it's also with for, it's also to start the conversation with other teams. Lamar Jackson's not picking up the phone and calling the GM of the 49ers to negotiate on his own behalf or to just have a sort of icebreaker conversation. That's what the agent does. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point that this is now becoming a story about narratives where the, the agent really could 
could play an important role. And he's sort of left on his own. I mean, his own forays into cultivating public opinion have not gone that well. You know, he responded angrily to a fan's tweet. You know, he has like players, you know, supporting him. But but largely he's sort of out of view in this process. You know, he's not going to be leaking to the press in the right way. You know, he's not going to be um, a kind of, he can't be, you know, that's not, that's not his job, his job. He's doing his job, which is to go out and play tremendous football, which he did last year until he got injured and he's done his job, but he doesn't have someone to do the other part of his job. Sorry about the baby making raspberries. <laughs> Stefan, by the time this podcast comes out, it's possible that Aaron Rodgers could have been traded to the Jets. Um, the president of the Packers was talking about Rodgers in the past tense over the weekend. Um, you also have the uh, Panthers trade up to the number one spot um, in the draft with the Bears giving up a bunch of draft picks and a really good wide receiver, DJ Moore, to get that pick. There are reports that they're going to take a quarterback, CJ Stroud, maybe. Um, the Dolphins seem to be going with uh, Tua. They picked up an option on him. And so, you know, if we're Focusing in the segment on Lamar Jackson, you could argue all of this is bad for Lamar Jackson, that these slots are getting filled. Um, you know, if we move off of that a little bit, um, you could make, I, I guess, a completely different argument, which is the teams are really, really interested in getting good quarterbacks um, and willing to trade a lot to do so. And so again, like depending on how you want to spend stuff, you can make any argument that you want. And so, you know, I don't know what you think about, um, you know, how this is going to play out in the next couple of weeks and months. But we got the draft coming up. We have free agency starting in a couple of days. And so, you know, on the one hand, it seems like hard to imagine that this would linger, and maybe this is all like negotiating tactics. But on the other hand, um, the positions seem like fairly hardened on both sides. And so I don't, yeah, I don't know if you have any predictions or thoughts on how it's all going to shake out. I don't have any predictions, but if I'm the New York Jets and my, and my hypothetical choice is between Lamar Jackson fully guaranteed at 200 and X million dollars and 55-year-old Aaron Rodgers um, talking on the Pat McAfee show every week, and in the New York media market, I, I am paying Lamar Jackson all the money to come play in New York. Maybe that's not a choice they're willing to make. But Aaron Rodgers to the Jets is certainly a gift to the tabloids. I mean, the new newspapers should be formed in New York um, to take advantage of all the nonsense that will go down when Roger starts opening up his mouth in front of the 60 reporters who regularly show up at Jets practices and games um, versus the five who are in Green Bay. Um, so the entertainment factor will be very high, I think, if Aaron Rodgers goes to the Jets. I mean, sure, the Jets may view him as a stopgap to see if Zach Wilson can be developed into a, uh, oh, a serviceable first-line quarterback. Come on. But, uh, but I would be interested in Lamar Jackson. So I don't think there's much of an argument for the Ravens not giving Jackson what he wants. I think there is actually a legitimate football argument to not give up two first-round picks for the right to pay Lamar Jackson $250 million. I mean, 
I think there's a good argument to do that. I don't think it's like it's very rare that a player of his skills would come available at 26 years old. But he's missed 11 games the last two years, thrown 33 touchdowns and 20 interceptions, and you're trading away. You know, if you're paying a quarterback that amount of money, the um, available options you have to restock your team on the cheap and to fill out the rest of the positions are first-round picks, which you would also be giving up. And so I think that's a much harder question. Um, the Ravens appear to have no good option to replace him and would not need to trade their first-round picks. And so it seems like that's the logical endpoint for all of this. It's for him to resign. Yeah. Yeah, for the Ravens to give him the money, sure. But if they are genu- genuinely unwilling to do that, seems like like a 26-year-old Lamar Jackson might be worth a couple of first-round picks. Up next, Nick Miller of The Athletic on Gary Lineker, the BBC, and everyone's favorite thing, rules about social media policies. for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last week, English football legend turned broadcaster Gary Lineker criticized the conservative government's plans to block asylum seekers arriving by boat across the English Channel. We take far fewer refugees than other major European countries, Lineker tweeted. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. On Friday, the BBC suspended Lineker and demanded an apology. That prompted a remarkable walkout in support of Lineker by his TV colleagues, potential fill-ins, and Premier League players and coaches. Over the weekend, Match of the Day, the signature BBC show, aired without commentators and coverage of matches had to be curtailed. And on Monday, the national crisis ended when it was the BBC apologizing to Lineker and announcing that he would return to the air as the main presenter on Match of the Day this coming weekend. Nick Miller covers football for The Athletic and appears on its Totally Football Show podcast. He joins us now from London. Hey, Nick. Hello. How are you doing? 
Good. Well, that was a remarkable series of events. A giant public media corporation under a conservative government brought to its knees by public outcry favoring a liberal-leaning ex-soccer star. Can you explain how this happened? How big is Gary Lineker in English culture as a player and commentator? So Lineker is, he's by I think, by some distance the most prominent sports presenter Um in in England, um, as a player, he was came one short of uh, holding the England goal scoring record at one stage. I think I, I in a piece I wrote for um, this weekend for if for an American audience, he's kind of what you would get if you sort of spliced Derek Jeter and Bob Costas together, kind of elite player without necessarily being the kind of great one of the greatest of uh, the greatest of all time and the kind of much loved presenter um sportscaster he's one of the most you know famous people in england and he to, to sort of give an idea that he, this was by a long distance the biggest news story in the uk not just in sports in all news over the weekend um and yeah everyone even if they had absolutely no interest in football um was more seemed more or less consumed by this and match of the day as an institution it's been on there since the 1960s. Can you also just describe, kind of, as we get our grounding here, what position the show itself has in um, the UK and what it felt like to watch this bowdlerized version of Match of the Day with no <laughs> no commentators? It got a rev- it got a one star out of five rating in the Guardian by its uh, one of its critics. Yeah, then that's that star is uh, quite generous, really. Yeah, Match of the Day was first aired in 1964. It's but barring a couple, there were a couple of years where the rights went away to someone else, but it's been airing more or less continuously since then. It's a, a Saturday night um, highlight show. Um, shows the highlights of all the uh, Premier League football games that weekend. Um, I, I think I'm probably fair in saying it's the sort of most beloved sporting media institution in the UK I don't think there's maybe the coverage of Wimbledon um, but that's obviously only over two weeks in the summer so yeah it, 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 it's it's kind of hard to overstate what a institution it is and yeah it, it usually lasts about 80-90 minutes this weekend it lasted 20 minutes there was no Titles. There was no theme music. The the theme tune to the to the, to the show is kind of a, a, an institution in itself. That wasn't there. It didn't even say match of the day at the start. It was just this kind of blank title card that says Premier League uh, highlights. And then we went through the whole thing. No commentary. No analysts. No analysis from the the guys in the studio who would usually be there. Who all kind of walked out in solidarity with Gary Lineker. Um, and it was incredibly eerie. It was like. It was like a sort of, I think I likened it to the kind of football equivalent of, you know, you can get those things of white noise on Spotify and YouTube where someone's just kind of put their microphone out a window and recorded the rain and they put it on YouTube and it gets streamed. Um, And these people are presumably pocketing loads of money from just recording some rain. Um, And yeah, it it was it was the kind of equivalent of of watching that. It's just it's incredibly strange, incredibly eerie, and um, yeah, there have been various people saying, "Well, you know, this is the this is what we want, really. We just want the want the highlights. We don't want any of the extraneous details." But I I think this watching that proved that we actually we do need the extraneous details. 
it's from over here, it seems incredibly um, anomalous, a little bit like, you know, a few years ago, Jamil Hill was um, suspended by ESPN from for some political tweets of her own. And it's I had a hard time imagining any ESPN personality, let alone all of them, you know, walking out in solidarity. Um, but that seems to be what happened. And, and it, you know, reading about it, it's, it's comical almost if it weren't so serious, um, you know, instead of instead of um, football, you had antiques and uh, gardening and all these other kind of like British institutions kind of filling in in this in this kind of lame and, and um, you know, grimly comic way. Yeah, I think that they chose the most cartoonishly British uh, things to to fill the space. Yeah, I mean, you you, you obviously mentioned the the people um, standing down in solidarity with Lineker. I, I think one of the the BBC have mishandled this whole situation in a variety of ways, but the main one, I, well, the, the main one that was most damaging to themselves, I think, is that they completely underestimated. Um, how much people would back Lineker. They underestimated the kind of public uh, sense of how they would back him and they underestimated what his colleagues would would think as well. I think they just assumed that they would um, they would stand Lineker down for the weekend and whoever there are various people who present the show when he's not there. They'll just call one of those guys up, they'll present it and, you know, no one will um, really care. But it was a sort of domino effect from Friday evening. Firstly, the sort of two main analysts that are on there most weeks, they said they're not going to do it. And it got down to the point where even the guys who were supposed to be presenting the Saturday afternoon show on um, Saturday afternoon football show on BBC Radio said, no, we, we can't do it. We, we're, we're standing aside in solidarity as well. So um, there was coverage of, uh, of uh, the Women's Super League over here, which was supposed to be on Sunday. Again, that went, the presenters for that and stood down. That was presented without any kind of analysis. So yeah, that they, they, they thought that I think that this was a way of calming things down. And what they actually did was whatever the opposite of calming it down is they whipped it up into a frenzy for a whole weekend and have been forced into for them was a pretty embarrassing climb down on monday morning the bbc's top executives were also revealed to be conservatives uh one of whom had uh made a contact for boris johnson that led to an eight hundred thousand pound loan for the former uh prime minister um so the embarrassment escalated for 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 the BBC particularly. The other thing that's interesting here, Nick, is that the BBC knew who Gary Lineker was. He has never shied away from being political on Twitter or making comments that can be interpreted as critical of governments um, or wading into politics. Before the World Cup, he opened the BBC's coverage with a 45-second um, critical commentary about the Qatari government and the and FIFA's decision to to uh, hold the World Cup there. So this shouldn't have been news to them. What was it about this particular critique that you think set off the powers that be? So, I mean, there are a couple of things there. I mean, I think there was an element of, you know, the element of He's done this before. Not quite. He was on his last chance, but he's certainly he's been reprimanded for his political tweets before. Um, this the the issue that he particularly spoke out about this this week has been a kind of enormous divisive thing in the the UK. So that was obviously very high profile. One of the really interesting things about it is that it was so 
it's, it's perpetuated by the BBC so much because uh, on the day that um, that he kind of spoke out, the top news story for a, for a little while anyway, the top news story on the BBC website was Gary Lineker's tweet rather than the actual announcement of the policy that he was criticising. And the, the the BBC themselves through the website and on the the news have covered it. Um, more than I think they would have done if it was just another broadcaster. So they they just I don't really know why they they did that. Um, why they kind of um, just made it worse for themselves in terms of what he is he has sort of said before. As I said, he has been warned about his political tweets. I should say for anyone who doesn't know anyone who anyone BBC employees are theoretically supposed to be politically impartial, which um, hasn't really been too much of a problem before because unless it's like really blatant stuff on air, they have turned a blind eye to it. And as you mentioned there, there are the the guys at the top of the BBC have conservative pasts. One of them uh, was actually a, a conservative councillor at one point uh, a few years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, a point that many people have raised is that people who are kind of on the uh, presenters, people who work for the BBC, on who are maybe on the kind of right wing um, political spectrum, have tweeted their views. They have worked for other white right wing organisations and this has seemingly been no problem. But then Gary Lineker says these things and he's kind of almost made an example of. So, yeah, I, I, it, it's hard to escape the conclusion that the BBC were just kind of scared of the uh, criticism that would come from certain quarters, so from, from the government. Um, both the Prime Minister and Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, have uh, criticised Gary Lineker. So it, it, the sense is that they came under quite a lot of pressure to do something about this. They just, as I said before, completely underestimated what the reaction would be. I have an alternate theory, which is he compared refugee policy to Nazi Germany. I mean, we can all talk about how he's said things and done things before um, they know who he is. But whether it's in the US or the UK or anywhere else, whenever anyone in power is compared to Nazis, that is generally an eyebrow raiser and an attention getter. And people are going to get their hackles up as Rishi Sunak and the prime minister and Swella Braverman, the home secretary did. And, you know, you could make the argument like Stefan, the, probably the closest comparison to the BBC here is NPR. If an NPR host said this, they would probably be suspended. Um, and so you could make the argument that Gary Lineker, the reason that he's going to be back on the air is because he's extremely popular and because public sentiment was in his favor, not because, oh, it turns out he did follow the rules or, oh, it turns out, you know, it is okay to make political commentary on the BBC. It's probably just a special carve out that they made because the response was so in Lineker's favor that they had no other option except to walk it back and maybe kind of look, you know, the other way against their stated principles in this one case. I also imagine that the response has been because he is so popular, not because people really agree with what with his critique of the refugee policy. Um, and I'm actually wondering if obviously he won the day in some sense because the show is coming back. But has there any been any elevated conversation about um, the refugee policy? Is there any sense that public opinion 
has moved at all um, because of either his tweets or the BBC's overreaction to the tweets and and everybody's you know announcement of solidarity with him, or is it just that he's a beloved figure and and so he's kind of going to to win the day in this respect? Uh, I think the kind of short answer to all that is yes. Um, he, I think he he, he did um, come back because he's a, a beloved figure. I think he he's arguably the most prominent person in the UK who is speaking out against these policies. Which you know the the, the leader, the theoretical leader of the, of the opposition, the Labour Party leader Keir Starmer, has uh, more or less agreed with what the the government said. Um, there aren't many, too many other celebrities or commentators of a you know political sense anyway who have spoken out quite as strongly as Lineker did so I think it's always very difficult to tell whether he's actually kind of shaping or changing public sentiment but there are certainly a lot of people who are glad that he is is speaking out and just kind of touching on what Josh was saying there, it's certainly true that the language he used, I'm splitting hairs slightly, but he said the language used was so similar to the language used in uh, 1930s Germany. Yeah, not not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s was the, yeah, the, the word. The, the, as, as Josh said, there is certainly a, a an argument that making those comparisons diminishes the kind of suffering in the Holocaust and everyone else in um, Germany at that time, but it's it's one it's something it's an argument that has been made. There are I think convincing arguments that uh, it's it's not making the he's not quite making the direct comparison. So maybe it, it wasn't quite as serious as that. But going back to the idea about him shaping public opinion, I think people are just some people are just kind of relieved that there is someone making these these kind of statements whether you agree with his wording and I, I think possibly even he might um after listening to some of the arguments in the last few days even he might think that he could have phrased it differently and made the point in a slightly different way um but yeah i think there was just a relief in some quarters anyway that there is someone anyone with a voice speaking out against these policies nick miller is a football writer for the athletic and is a regular guest on the Totally Football Show. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now it is time for Afterball, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Uh, Gary Lineker 
Stefan played for Leicester City uh, from 1978 to 1985 and famously broadcast in his uh, underwear after Leicester City won the Premier League back in the mid-2010s. Um, if only we all had such a commitment to our former clubs. Uh, Everton, Barcelona, Tottenham Hotspur, and, of course, Nagoya Grampus was his final club. What can you tell us about Nagoya Grampus? I couldn't tell you anything about Nagoya Grampus until one minute ago when I Googled Nagoya Grampus. It's a Japanese team, formerly known as Nagoya Grampus 8. The team's name was derived from the two most prominent symbols of Nagoya, the two golden Grampus dolphins on the top of Nagoya Castle and the Maruhachi Circle 8, the city's official symbol. I did not know that Arsene Wenger coached there before he went to Arsenal and became world famous. Nagoya Grampus. Stefan. What is your Nagoya Grampus? A day after beating Penn for the second time in a week, sigh, evil, boring Princeton defeated Yale on Sunday to win the Ivy League's four-team men's tournament and a date against two-seed Arizona in the NCAAs. The Princeton women beat Penn on Friday and Harvard on Saturday and will play seven-seed North Carolina State. Good luck to them both. Not really. What will distinguish the Tigers most in March Madness, though, won't be their Halloween-ass colors or nonstop mentions of that time Pete Carrill won a tournament game and almost won another. No, what will make Princeton stand out is that of the 136 teams in March Madness, they'll be the only two whose players don't get athletic scholarships. The Ivy League, Penn, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Brown, Dartmouth, Cornell, and Columbia, was formed in 1954. But the first Ivy Group agreement in 1945 established the school's guidelines, initially for football, which was seen as increasingly corrupt. Athletes shall be admitted as students and awarded financial aid, the schools wrote, only on the basis of the same academic standards and economic need as are applied to all other students. But the Ivy League has always been as much an exercise in marketing as morality. It has the most distinctive brand in intercollegiate sports, and it wears its holier-than-thou scholarship ban as a badge of honor. Play sports here and be not sullied by the crass commercialization of intercollegiate competition. For decades, the league has conned athletes into believing that some financial sacrifice is worth it because they walk away with an Ivy degree. It's an effective pitch. As a friend of mine pointed out, no one who went to Vanderbilt says they have an SEC degree. But price-fixing your way to superiority is past its time. The NCAA's decades of lies and BS are ending. O'Bannon, Alston, NIL, the transfer portal. It's time for the Ivy's BS to end, too. Last week, attorneys representing one current and one former Brown basketball player filed a class-action lawsuit against the eight Ivies, asserting that the athletic scholarship prohibition violates federal antitrust laws. The basic argument is this. The schools illegally collude to restrain costs by forcing athletes to pay more to attend than they would in the absence of their agreement. The Ivies got away with this for years because of a 1994 antitrust exemption that allowed them to coordinate need-based financial aid. But Congress let that expire last fall, opening the door to the legal challenge. The lawsuit also argues that the Ivies' continued refusal to compensate athletes for education-related expenses, like books and computers, violates the Supreme Court's 2020 ruling in NCAA v. Alston. 
This case matters not because the Ivy League is different or special, but because it's not. Its schools wouldn't go broke if they awarded athletic scholarships. Harvard's endowment is 51 billion, Yale's is 41, Princeton's is 36. And it's not like they'd suddenly abandon all academic requirements for basketball and football players. They'd just compete with Stanford and Duke for the best of the smartest ones. The league already lures rich, talented, upper-middle-class, mostly white kids in non-revenue sports. Yale is currently ranked number one in men's lacrosse. Scholarships would provide the same IV opportunity to academically qualified middle and lower income athletes in basketball and football and steal a few studs in the other sports who now take a free ride elsewhere. Legal cases like these face a long uphill road. The Ivies could avoid an expensive battle by deciding on their own to give athletes and other students merit-based scholarships. It wouldn't even cost that much in actual dollars to bump up athletes who already get some need-based aid. A couple of Sweet 16 runs would take care of it. The Ivies could really live up to their high opinion of themselves by going further and becoming the first league to pay athletes. And it's a ripe time for change. Half of the league's schools have new presidents. One of them, Liz McGill at Penn, is a former Stanford law dean, Virginia provost, and enthusiastic palestra regular who should be able to read the writing on the wall. But the league probably won't act on its own. Instead, it will argue that providing scholarships would be expensive and compromise the journey, as it said in a statement about the lawsuit, that its members provide to students. So it's worth asking, what would happen if the Ivies joined the scholarship ranks? For starters, they'd be prime targets from other conferences. Who wouldn't want Harvard and Yale? Princeton and Penn could be attractive to the ACC. Columbia or Cornell in the Big East? Why not? Smaller Dartmouth and Brown could join the Patriot League or scale down and play Amherst and Williams in Division III. More likely, though, the league would be the poacher because the brand name is so powerful. A big market Ivy-ish school like Johns Hopkins might lobby for membership. Northwestern might see Harvard as a more logical partner than Nebraska. The ancient eight could preserve its elitism in football, staying in the FCS or dropping the sport altogether. Expenses would increase, but revenue would too. And don't be fooled, the Ivies care deeply about the money. The league already has a deal with ESPN, and its rights would blow up in a scholarship world. The Ivy League has tried forever to have it both ways, to brag about its athletics. Over 240 nationally ranked programs over the past three years, the front page of its website says, while pretending it's above the dirty fray, even if that means burdening athletes as tuition has skyrocketed over the last 40 years. If you view the Ivy League as an elitist sports backwater, this lawsuit might seem irrelevant or even pretentious. But you'd be getting fooled by the brand. The Ivy League is just another association of NCAA member schools that has exploited athletes for generations. It's about time someone called them out on their anachronistic and paternalistic and possibly illegal way of doing business. The notion that the Ivy League would be interested in allowing other institutions to join the Ivy League or would be interested in joining some other league is maybe the most laughable thing you've ever said. What could they, what do they have to hang on to if not to their uh, ancient date, we're better than everyone else, you can't join our club uh, ethos? That's their whole thing. It's their whole thing now, but. Everything changes in college sports, and there's nothing saying that this couldn't change, too. The Ivy League would gladly accept 
tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, if it required them to make some modest adjustments. I think the prospect that the Ivy League would disappear and would break up the way I described in one um, scenario is the most unlikely thing. I think it is more likely that the brand would expand because it is a powerful brand. Um, and if someone wanted to buy into that brand, I can't imagine that despite these whatever hundred years of sort of collaborating and 70 years of doing it on a formal basis couldn't come to an end the way that just about everything else that we've identified with college sports could come to an end, is coming to an end too. The power of the brand is, is, is its exclusivity. So that's why I don't agree that it's possible or plausible. But also I wrote a piece um, a while ago now when Harvard decided that it really wanted to compete mm -hmm. in men's basketball with Tommy Amaker. They had a bunch right. of, of really good teams. And the thing that I wrote then was that while the schools like Harvard talk about how they want to lead the way in all of these different realms, whether it's with, you know, things like going need blind or whatever, we can come up with a, a bunch of different examples in sports. When there has been such a need for an institution to step up and say, the way that the NCA works is bankrupt, it's immoral, there needs to be a better approach. When there's no better school or group of schools to say that we don't need this, or maybe we do need and want sports and we can create a different model because we don't need your own one, your old one. Instead of doing that, the schools like Harvard in that case have instead chosen to opt in, which I found completely, um, I don't know if ludicrous is the right word, but like backward retrograde. And so I just feel like the idea that the IVs are going to step up and do something to like move us in a new and better direction or to even embrace modernity in this way. It just, I, I think that recent history suggests it's not going to happen. But you're ignoring the reality of what's changing. They could be sued into doing this. They could be forced, their hand could be forced here. Athletes are getting their rights. They are getting the right to make money and to have their educations paid for. Um, there is nothing that would stop the Ivy League, and they may have no choice but to do so. Um, the quality of the competition in men's basketball has declined um, over the years. And if you don't think it'll continue to decline even more in an era when the Ivies are sort of reluctantly embracing NIL and encouraging athletes to get deals, um, that's going to be a, a changer for kids that may be weighing the difference between going to Penn or Princeton or Northwestern. Um, and, and, and I think that the embracing reality is going to hit them in the face. They've been able to skate by. You're right, Josh, because of the old school ties and the exclusivity of the brand. But everything else is changing in college sports, and I think that plausibly, it's plausible that this could change too. And if you don't think that schools like Princeton, which competes like hell in sports, wouldn't want to be even better, then that's mistaken. Maybe Harvard made a decision a decade ago to sort of opt in quietly and sort of modestly, but given the opportunity to go full full force, um, it would not surprise me that some of the Ivy schools wouldn't jump at the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I guess the fundamental disagreement here is that I feel like they've had that opportunity forever. And I, I mean, maybe a, a point where we can end and agree is that if they do make these changes or any set of changes, then please 
let's not congratulate them or say that they're in any way being a progressive or revolutionary, that they've fought this. And again, when given any kind of opportunity to pave the way, show a different um, you know, way of doing things or to be leaders that they profess to be, that they've never, ever done that. That's right. They will be dragged into the present um, just as the NCAA is being dragged into the present now. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis and Louisa Thomas, I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelma Beatty and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.